All right, how's everybody doing? We are going to be back in the book of God's wisdom, which obviously all of Scripture is communicating His wisdom in one way or another, but formally in the book of Proverbs. And we're picking up where we left off in chapter 6. And if you have a blue Bible that we provide, it's on, we're going to be on page 531 in the blue Bibles. So last time we looked at and by last time, I mean last time we were in the book of Proverbs, we looked at verses 6 through 11, which warned us in that section, it warned us of the sin of laziness. It warned us against laziness. And we saw a portrait of the sluggard. The sluggard. And, and we looked at other passages in, in Proverbs, kind of a, a topical uh, study on the subject of laziness and work, and these passages that address the ungodly desire to avoid work. And that's essentially what laziness is. It is this desire to avoid work at all costs. And what we learned was just that God created us to work. He designed us with that purpose to work. And we're called to work at everything with joyful diligence as unto Him. And so our work is to be an act of worship in everything that we do. Everything He's given us to do, it's to be an act of worship because ultimately we are working as unto the Lord. It's, it's Christ Jesus that we're serving. So in what we do, it's to be done to exalt the name of Jesus Christ and to bring God glory. And in our passage this morning, which is going to be verses 12 through 19, that's the section we're going to look at, we're going to see another portrait. It's a portrait of the worthless person, the wicked man. Proverbs calls him the worthless person. Like the sluggard, The worthless person is a a rebel against God and a detriment to society. The same effect. He's in rebellion against God and he's he's a detriment to society. And and while the sluggard is, is characterized by his devotion to avoiding work, we'll see that the worthless person is characterized by his devotion to doing evil work. He uses his strength and his talents and his resources and his ingenuity to do things that God hates. So let's read our passage. Starting in verse 12, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, Calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among his brothers. So in this first part we're going to look at, we're looking at verses 12 through 14, and this is going to show us, describe for us, Solomon's describing the worthless person's way. In verse 12 he says, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. And the term worthless person refers to someone who's a scoundrel. He's a scoundrel. He's, he's an unprincipled, dishonorable man. He does not know the Lord, and therefore he's morally bankrupt. 
He's worthless, wicked. Solomon describes him as one who goes about with crooked speech, literally in the Hebrew, with a twisted mouth, a twisted mouth. The worthless person, he's, he's, he's not committed to being honest and is speaking the truth. He's willing to lie. He's willing to deceive. He's willing to manipulate and slander people with his words. And he will say really whatever he needs to say in order to get what he wants. In verse 13, Solomon continues to describe him. He winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. Sometimes this is showing us that the, the worthless person needs help from others to get what he wants. The picture here is that he's, he's secretly communicating and coordinating with other worthless people who have conspired with him in order to carry out his wicked plans. So winking, depending on the intention, isn't necessarily the evil act. It is this secret communication to carry out wicked plans with others. And so far, what we've seen here is Solomon shows us that the worthless person, he's, he's using the external members of his body, his, his mouth, his eyes, his feet, and his hands as instruments for unrighteousness. And in verse 14, Solomon shows us that the corrupt behavior of this worthless person stems from his corrupt heart. Verse 14, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. You see, the, the worthless person's heart is, is perverted. The word perverted in, in, in Hebrew literally speaks of, of something that's been overturned. And here it's used in a figurative sense to refer to something that is morally upside down. So the worthless person's heart is morally inverted. He calls evil good. He calls good evil. In other words, he, he loves what God hates, and he hates what God loves. He values and desires what's contrary to the truth of God, what's contrary to the law of God, and what's contrary to the wisdom of God. And we see that in our culture, right? Men who do not know the Lord, who do not fear the Lord, desire the very things that God calls evil and wicked. So notice the word continually. You see that in verse 14? This word is more likely describing how often he devises evil rather than how often he sows discord. So it would probably be better that comma be right after that word. And this is reflected in the New American Standard Bible. It says continually devises evil. The New King James Version devises evil continually. And the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which translated this way, uh, he always plots evil. So the worthless person in his heart, he is always plotting he is always scheming, and he's always coming up with ways in which he can satisfy his sinful desires, which consume his thoughts. And ultimately, they drive his actions. That's the root of it. And one commentator puts it this way, Such a person has no regard for anything but that which might work to his or her advantage. Rules and values are used when it's beneficial to do so but they are disregarded when they are inconvenience. Mind you, this includes the rules and values of God, the wisdom of God, the law of God. Such a one is always looking for an edge over everyone else. Self is first. Self-love, self-centeredness, 
always looking for an angle. And as the worthless person, he takes action, he carries out his wicked plans. Solomon says he sows discord. That's the end of verse 14. And the Hebrew verb translated as sows literally means to unleash. Unleash. The worthless person unleashes discord. He disrupts peace. He disrupts harmony and moral order among people by stirring up strife, initiating quarrels, and creating bitter conflicts. In other words, he does not build others up, but he tears them down. Elsewhere in Proverbs, Solomon says this, and in chapter 16, verses 27 through 30, he says this about a worthless man. A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife. And a whisperer separates close friends. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. Whoever winks with his eyes plans dishonest things. He who purses his lips brings evil to pass. So the worthless person, he unleashes discord. This is his effect, like a scorching fire. And to sum up verses 12 through 14, This worthless person, in the eyes of God, he's one who's always plotting and scheming and lying and deceiving and unleashing discord in order to satisfy the sinful desires of his corrupt and perverted hearts. This is his way. This is his way. But Solomon says his way will come to an end because he will be brought to an end. Look at verse 15. Solomon tells us the, the fate of the worthless person. Therefore, Calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. You see, the the fate of someone who fits this description, this worthless person who persists in their wickedness, their fate is guaranteed. Verse 15 is guaranteed. It is not a a possible, probable kind of outcome. It It is sealed for them. His evil way will certainly come to a disastrous end. You know why? Because God will bring it to an end. God is sovereign, and he's the one who will bring this upon him. This calamity that will come upon him is God's righteous judgment for the evil that he's done. God is sovereign, and God is just. Solomon does not say when this judgment will come, does he? What does he say? He says how it will come. He says it will come suddenly and in a moment. And this is, this is we, we've seen him describe the, the judgment of God fall upon wicked men who do not fear the Lord. Ultimately, if they keep turning away from God's wisdom, which cries out to them and calls them to come to their senses, to fear the Lord and to trust in him and embrace his wisdom, judgment will come upon them suddenly, swiftly, and definitively. And elsewhere, we could look in Psalm 73, written by Asaph, and he describes the end of the wicked. And, and Psalm 73, if you haven't read it, it's a great, it's a, it's a wonderful psalm because it starts out with him struggling with the fact that he's seeing the wicked seeming to prosper in the world. The, the people who are doing the very things that God hates, the people who don't fear the Lord and, and, and unleash discord, it's, it, things seem to be going well for them. What's going on? His, he almost became envious of them. And then he came to this conclusion, and he said, I 
sat in the temple of the Lord, and I, I discerned their end. And he says this, verse 18 and 73, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. See, the, the judgment of God will come upon worthless people unexpectedly. That's the idea. Unexpectedly. And when it comes, it'll be swift, it'll be irreversible, and it'll be permanent. He will be, the worthless person, broken beyond healing. So what does this mean? Well, it means it's his ultimate judgment. This is final judgment. It is eternal death. There's no recovery. There's no second chance. A hardened heart that is in rebellion against the Lord Feet that turn from the Lord and walk in the way of wickedness and and do not heed these warnings to repent ultimately will suffer the eternal judgment of God. By the way, perhaps you've figured this out already, but this is the fate of every person apart from the saving grace of God. This is the fate of every man apart from God's saving grace. The description of the worthless man really ultimately fits every person in his or her natural fallen condition. Paul says in in Romans chapter 3, he says, as it is written, he says, all are under sin. All of humanity is under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together They have become worthless. Everyone has inherited moral corruption from our first parents, Adam and Eve, who sinned against God in the beginning. Sinners beget sinners who beget sinners. Everyone begins with a heart that does not fear the Lord and is full of perversity and full of folly and devises evil continually. Everyone begins with a heart like that. But God, in an incredible display of His unparalleled grace and mercy, what has He done? He has chosen to save worthless people by giving them a new heart and making them new creations in His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, last week when we talked about the new covenant, this promise that He would give a new heart, this work that He would accomplish, that's His grace However, here's what we need to keep in mind. It's only those who repent. Only those who repent and trust in the Lord who will be saved. So this isn't universalism. God is not going to, in His grace, save the entire human race. He will save the race in the sense that He will not let all be destroyed under His just wrath. But He has chosen to save some. Those who do not fear God but continue in sin... And continue in unbelief will be cast into eternal hell. See, Scripture is clear. God is sovereign. He's chosen to save some. It's His grace by which we are saved. But men are accountable. Everyone is accountable for their unbelief, for their sin, for their lack of repentance. It's God's mercy to call them to repentance. It's God's mercy to cry out to them to repent and trust in Him. So Solomon's point in in showing us the fate of the worthless person is that God cannot be mocked. 
and that the unrepentant, worthless person will reap what he sows. God's not unjust. He's just. He's righteous. He doesn't wink at sin. It's not swept under the rug. He will deal with it justly. What we reap, we sow. And if the worthless person persists in his wickedness, he will reap the wrath and fury of God. Why? Because he loves and he does the very things that God absolutely hates. Why is God's wrath against sinful mankind? Why would there be fury? Why would there be eternal punishment in hell? It's because of what sinful mankind does. The very things that he hates, that stir up his righteous anger. And Solomon lists some of these things in this next section, verses 16 through 19. He says in verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. See, we're, we're getting to see the heart of God. This is his word. He's revealed himself. And here's how he's, he's showing us his heart. Here's what he hates. Here are things that are an abomination to him. Obviously not an exhaustive list. But extensive. Now, we see this statement. He hates and there are things that are abomination to him. And yet, according to the Bible, God is love, right? God is love. That statement is written down twice in 1 John chapter 4. God is love. However, here and elsewhere in the Bible, we clearly see and are told that there are things that God hates. He absolutely hates. Our Creator, who is love, He, he not only loves, but He hates as well. And these are not contradictory ideas, but complementary truths. They go together because God is love. There are things that he hates. And there are things that are an abomination to him. And that word abomination refers to something that's detestable and highly offensive. It is outrageous and repugnant. That's what that word means. And this here is a list of things that are essentially completely incompatible with God's holy character in this list. Verse 17, what does he hate? He hates haughty eyes. Eyes that are lifted up in arrogance. Eyes that see self as greater and more important than everyone else. Self-centeredness, arrogance, pride, he hates. God hates a lying tongue. A tongue that speaks what is false in order to deceive others. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. These are hands that commit murder. Hands that take part, whether directly or indirectly, in the slaying of an innocent person. And mind you, that is the ultimate act that stems from hatred and rage. Verse 18, God hates a heart that devises wicked plans. A heart, which again referred to the mind the thought life that generates all, kind of, all kinds of wicked ideas and, and then plots and schemes in order to, to bring them to fruition. And God hates feet that make haste to run evil. Feet that they rush at the opportunity to carry out one's evil plans. They rush at the opportunity to sin. There might not be an opportunity to sin, so there's a, a holding back. But as soon as there is one and no one's looking, there's indulgence. 
these things that God hates are done by everyone. Keep in mind, they're done by everyone in his or her natural sinful state to one degree or another. Even the people that God has saved because of the presence of indwelling sin sometimes do these things to one degree or another. So as I said before, apart from the saving grace of God, man is spiritually dead. And he follows the sinful course of this world, and he follows the prince of the power of the air, as Paul wrote in Ephesians. The prince of the power of air, he follows that Satan, that is the devil, that is the chief enemy of God. And here's what Jesus said to the faithless Jews of his day, just to to see his perspective. He could see the heart. In John 8, 44, he said to them, who maybe superficially believed in what he said, uh, but they had no saving faith. They really didn't have faith in him. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what God hates is satanic work through sinful people. The satanic work of of sinful people. That's what we're seeing in this list. It is satanic work. And what's interesting is that the Hebrew word that is translated as worthless person is belial, which is a word that later came to be used by the Jews as another personal name for the devil. And we actually see it used in this way in the, in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes, What accord has Christ with Belial? Referring to Satan. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Complete opposite, opposites. The enemy of God, the enemy of Christ. This is Belial, this is the ultimate worthless one. And perhaps you could say, based on what Jesus said, the father of worthless men and women. So the worthless person's will is to do the desires of his father, the devil. However, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3 eight. that's where that's written. To destroy those works. And he accomplished this by dying in the place of sinful men, in the place of worthless people, all the worthless people whom God had chosen to save before the foundation of the world. And he took the wrath that they deserve upon himself, and he caused them to be born again through faith in his name, so that their will would be to do the desires of their new Father, God in heaven. And they would no longer make a practice of sinning. That's what happens when God saves a worthless person. No longer a slave to sin. No longer on the power of Satan doing his will and desiring to carry his will out. But given a new heart and a new nature. Being a new creation in Christ and and being now a child of God and desiring to carry out his will. Desiring having your desires aligned with his That's what it looks like to be born again. Verse 19, Solomon says this, God hates a false witness who breathes out lies. 
Again, Satan's the father of lies. God hates a false witness who breathes out lies. and It's one who attempts to subvert justice by making false accusations and lying under oath. I mean, he already said he hates a lying tongue. But here, taking that further and into the courts, so to speak. This is one who seeks to use the law as a means to harm others, to manipulate what should be something to enforce justice and uphold justice, to manipulate that system to harm others. Lying for the worthless person is as natural as exhaling for him. Breeze lies out. Now remember that Jesus said that when Satan lies, he speaks out of his own character, right? He speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies, and so does the worthless person who is captive to sin and under the power of Satan. He breathes out lies. And finally, God hates one who sows or unleashes discord among brothers. One who instigates trouble and disrupts peace and harmony and moral order. That's what it means to sow discord. To unleash discord. You're disrupting peace, you're disrupting harmony, and you're disrupting moral order. And in fact, you look anywhere in the Scripture, it says certain things are an abomination to God. It's because they're doing that. That is the effect that they're having in some way. And this last point, it really ties the list together. This is, this is kind of the, the theme, so to speak. It was, it was the conclusion of the description in verses 12 through 14, and it's the conclusion of this list. It's the same statement. He unleashes discord. It ties the list together, and it shows us that all of the things that God hates ultimately are are actions that unleash discord and disrupt what love would otherwise achieve. So we can look at this list, and we can just say it's a list. Is God just arbitrarily listing off some things that he hates for I, I don't know why? For certain reasons, they're evil. Why are they evil? Why does he hate them? And I would say because all these things, they unleash discord, which is doing, it is disrupting what love would otherwise achieve. It is countering love. Remember, God is love. And How do we see this in Scripture? How does he reveal himself? We, he, he reveals himself by saying God is love, and we see that his law is what? His law is love, isn't it? All of his commands are summed up in, in what too? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. All the commandments of God, all the law of God are summed up in those two. His law is love. He is love and love comes from him. And therefore, his law is love. And Paul said in, in Romans chapter 13, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, love is a, is a reflection of the likeness of God in man. God made man in his image and likeness. And that involves several things. Giving him dominion over the earth to be, represent him on the earth. But if you had to sum up one of the key things that reflects the likeness of God, it's, it's this capacity to love. And this love, this capacity to love, results in, in peace and harmony and moral order among people. This was his design and purpose for mankind when he created them in the beginning. It was perfectly good. 
However, all the things in the list here in the Proverbs, these things that God hates, they pervert that likeness of God. They pervert it. And they disrupt what love would otherwise achieve. And one commentator puts it this way. The types of behavior under consideration here in Proverbs 6, 12 through 19, have this in common. They're all disruptive in their tendency. They are characterized by self-assertiveness or malice or violence. And they break the bond of confidence and loyalty between man and man. What does it do? It, It destroys relationships. It tears people apart. It tears them down. It does the opposite of what love would do. These things God hates. So what should our response be? Well, if our wills are to be aligned with God's will, and if we're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in a way that's fully pleasing to Him, then we must hate what God hates. That's wisdom for us. We must hate what He hates. We have an obligation to hate as His children. We hate the things that He hates. We must, as Paul says in Romans 12, 9, how did he start out that list, the Christian code of conduct, let love be genuine? And he says, do what with evil? How do you respond to it? You abhor it. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. When you're abhorring evil, you're hating it. You're hating the very thing that God hates. That's the Christian code of conduct. So in order to do this, we begin with ourselves, right? Take that speck out of our eye, or I should say that log out of our eye before we try to call out a speck in someone else's. We need to examine ourselves in our own hearts and to put this into practice, hate what God hates. If we see sin in us, we repent of it. We put it out. And we even see this wisdom communicated. We saw this in chapter 4 in Proverbs. Solomon said this to his son. In chapter 4, verse 23 to 27, he said, here's the positive instruction. Hate what God hates, right? Positive instruction is this. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. You need to address what's in the heart in order to address, truly address the actions. Put away from you crooked speech. Put it away. And put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Well, you'll do that if you you hate evil, if you hate sin, if you hate these things that God hates. You see them in you, you, you put them off. You turn from them. If we truly hate the things that God hates, then we'll put an end to them. We will put them to death. Ultimately, the the greatest manifestation of hatred is murder, isn't it? But we're called to kill our sin. Put it to death. That means we won't delight in these things or encourage them or enable them, these things that God hates. We won't delight in them, encourage them or enable them. So if there's pride... Kill it. If there's dishonesty, kill it. If there's rage boiling up, kill it. If there's anything that would unleash discord and disrupt peace and harmony among our brothers and sisters, what do you do? Put that to death. Kill it. 
How do we kill these things? Are we just speaking in the abstract? How do I do that? We kill them effectively, definitively, truly, by putting on love. Self-control holds sin back, okay? Self-control is good. It's godliness. But if that was all there was, then all you're doing is you're holding sin back. Love puts it to death. Here's what that looks like. There's so many passages we could go to just to see instructions to the church where this is, this is played out. So we're going to go to Colossians chapter 3. Here, here's Paul's instruction, and he does this in Ephesians and Colossians, a similar statement. He says, you have put off the old self and you've put on the new. What he's referring to is that you're a new creation in Christ. You've been born again. That old self, that person you were, dead in sin, is gone. You've put on the new self. That, that, that's a past action. It's done. You're not like two selves, oh, my old self and my new self. And the, that's not how it works. The old self is gone. But then he says to put off what is earthly in you. Put off those, 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 those characteristics, those things that your, you and your old self did naturally. That you basically kept training yourself to get better and better at these wicked things. There's remnants of that. God gives you a new heart, and then there's remnants of sin that need to be put off and be replaced by putting on godliness. Here's what that looks like. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and... If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, here's the summary command, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's how we apply this. We, we see the things that God hates, this list, and, and then our response should be, I need to hate the things that God hates. And to truly do that, the result of that is I put those things to death. This sin that I see in myself, I put it to death, and I replace it with love. Because the reason God hates those things is because they disrupt and destroy the things that love would achieve. Also, I want to step back and, and look how this plays out corporately. Because we don't just live in our own little individual bubble. I'm an individual follower of Christ, and I'm working on my walk and my sanctification, just me. I'm going to mind my own business. We as the church are the body of Christ, and we, God uses us as members working together in unity and in love to, to bring about our sanctification as a church. So if we truly hate the things that God hates, then we will strive to help others put them to death as well. So that's why we have instruction in the New Testament. If if a brother is caught in sin, is caught in a sin, what do you do? Well, uh, you shouldn't be doing that. I'll just mind my own business. No, Paul says, you who are spiritual, you restore him with a spirit of gentleness. So we need to confront a sinning brother or sister, and warn the brother or sister that they might repent, that they might put that sin to death and be restored. That's what it means to restore them. You're calling them to repent. 
and to put that sin to death and so they can be restored. And so we, we here at Summit, and really, biblically speaking, every church should practice what is called church discipline. And if you don't understand what that is, you can, it has discipline, it has all these connotations. But here's what it is. First of all, we do it because the Lord commanded it of his church in Matthew 18. So this is an act of obedience on our part to do and pra- uh, practice things that the Lord's practices, uh, practice, he's given us to practice. And the purpose of church discipline is this. It's to awaken sinning brothers and sisters to repentance. It's accountability. And it's seeking their good by seeking to lead them to repentance. If we truly love them, then we'll not in any way encourage or enable their sin, will we? Can you really say that you love someone, but you just encourage and enable them in their sin? Or wink at it? We don't do that because it's harmful to them and the rest of the body of Christ. If we truly love them, we address that. We go in a spirit of gentleness, seeking their repentance. We warn them and call them to repent so that they might be restored. That's, that's the process. So usually it's good to say restorative church discipline. I encourage you guys to, to read the Constitution that we have because it, it lays that out, how we'll put that into practice and the intention of that. It's for the purity of the body and for the protection of the body because sin destroys. So in order for us to love one another with brotherly affection, as Paul calls us to in that Christian code of conduct in Romans 12, In order for us to love one another with brotherly affection and live in harmony with one another, as the Lord has called us to do, then we must hate what the Lord hates. So, we need to receive the wisdom of his word this morning and align our hearts with his. That's our wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us clearly in your word. You didn't um, give us pictures or subjective signs, but you have written down and revealed your holy character that we might know you as you really are. And and we thank you for, in this passage, showing us your heart and, and telling us that the things that are detestable to you, because as your children, Lord, we know that it is our wisdom to detest those things as well. We pray for our own continued sanctification that we might put off those sinful tendencies and desires that characterized us before you graciously saved us and gave us life in Jesus' name, and that we might put on love, that we might replace sin with righteousness, that we might replace the things that you hate with the things that you love. Pray that this church would be a people that seeks to build others up, that is faithful to proclaim the gospel that saves worthless people and makes them new creations in Christ. And God, we rejoice that you have showered your grace upon us and taken us and changed us and made us no longer taking us from worthless people and, and, and making us new creations and calling us your children and giving us hearts that now we're able to do the things that you desire and the, the things that you love. Father, when we honor you in our lives this week, when we apply your wisdom, when we align our will with yours, 
in every aspect of life. Keep us from being selectively obedient. And help us to have a zeal, a zeal for holiness because we know that sin destroys. It tears down. It disrupts the very thing that your love would achieve. Help us to be faithful in pursuing that. Amen.